Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions in life. Like, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, who best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts towards the author of the answers. So whether you are pouring yourself a cup of tea and settling into a comfortable nook, hopping on the treadmill, or just starting your commute, we invite you to join us in one of the great joys of life, a conversation among friends on the things that matter most. We hope this episode will challenge your thinking and encourage your heart. With that, here's today's conversation. I'm really excited to welcome our guest today, whose beautifully written work, Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies, while first published around a decade ago and now out in a special edition, seems like it could have been written specifically for our time. It invites us to reflect on the ways that we use and abuse language, what it means to care for words and why it matters, both for ourselves and for our society. She both encourages and models a delight in words and argues that caring for language is a moral issue and one that is not inseparable from caring for each other. It is a challenging, profound, and even poetic work and I'm delighted to introduce its author, Dr. Marilyn McIntyre. Marilyn McIntyre is a writer, speaker, and professor of medical humanities at UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco Joint Medical Program, as well as a faculty member at Westmont College. She's the author of over 20 books, including both the one that we'll be discussing today and her latest, Speaking Peace in a Climate of Conflict. She's also written dozens of articles and reviews in such journals as the Washington Post, Books and Culture, Comment, a journal of the American Medical Association, and Christianity Today. Marilyn, welcome. Thank you. What a pleasure to be here. It's really great to have you. So I wanted to start off just by returning to your argument that I just quoted from, that caring for language is a moral issue and is actually linked to caring for others. What does it mean to care for language? And what's the connection between caring for our words uh, and caring for our neighbor? Well, an analogy that I use in the book that I think is pretty apt is the matter of caring for the environment, caring for the soil that we grow crops in, caring for the whole process of making food. It seems to me that caring for words is like that. The discourse or the discursive environment we inhabit is like the natural environment we inhabit. Words can get used up. Some words need to lie fallow for a while. Words can be treated as resources and exploited like resources, or they can be really carefully cultivated for good use. So I think that's a fair analogy to play with. So one of your strategies for caring for words is, not surprisingly, to love them and to be grateful for them. And you've now written over 20 books yourself, several of which actually have to do with reading and writing. So presumably that is something that is near and dear to your own heart. 
how did you come to learn to love words and love to read? Were there any particular books that inspired that love or what was your journey in that area? Well, certainly the long story starts, and I won't tell the long story, but it starts with growing up in a three-generation household of people who talked at the dinner table and read us stories and read us songs and prayed with us. And so I lived in an environment of words that was very rich. We didn't have much money, but we had a lot of words. And I think to say something about more recent direction in my life with words is to say that when I discovered the ancient Benedictine practice of Lectio Divina, which is a practice of reading in Benedict's case, sacred scripture, very small section at a time, and listening for the word or phrase that speaks to you, that was a liberating moment. And I think it helped, something clicked when I learned about Lectio that had already implicitly been there in loving poetry. But it is to say that if you pause over a word or a phrase, rather than an idea or a whole sentence, you, and you say, what was that? That word just opened a door. It triggered something. It brought something up. What was that? And it allows you to go in rather than go on through the rest of the sentence. So that practice of allowing time when I read to go in before I go on has been helpful in my own spiritual and intellectual life. And also it's Anybody out there who's a former student will know that that's one of the things that they hear a lot. That seems to pick up on an idea that you mentioned throughout your book, that part of caring for words is not just reading or reading a lot, but really learn to read well. And there is a, a qualitative difference in reading well between that and say, just sort of skimming uh, for information. Uh, you actually said how we choose to read, how we submit to or question the terms set by the writer are the choices that shape the habits of our mind and the habits of our hearts. So I'd love for you just to break down for our viewers, how does one learn to read well? If one wants to master this, how do they go about doing that? So I think the first thing I would say about reading well is slow down, mm -hmm. which all by itself is really countercultural. Everything in the culture says, speed up, get through it, build your momentum, complete things. And so slowing down has to be really intentional. And I think it helps to have communities within which we support one another in that, reading groups, discussion groups, study groups, prayer groups. The second thing I would say about reading well is to pause where it gives you pause. So as I said, to pause over a word or phrase or a paragraph or passage or a line in a poem and say, wait, what was that? Is to always include a subjective dimension of listening I think that we learn to hold a text at arm's length and mine it for what's there because we head in with our own purposes. I want to get the gist. I want to find out. Mm -hmm. But I think another dimension to reading well is to read with a kind of openness to being taught. What is there here for me? That might not be new information, but maybe just a slight reframing of something I think I already know. And listening for words that awaken us. 
that's so subjective and it's difficult to hang on to that subjectivity in academic environments, for instance. Yeah. You mentioned learning to listen for works that awaken us, which is a beautiful way of expressing uh, that thought. And one of the things it seems like you have been particularly concerned with in your work are the loss of words that might awaken us. The weakening and attenuation and shrinking um, of our vocabulary. You make the fascinating point that as usable words are lost, human experience becomes cruder and less communicable. And with a loss of subtlety, clarity, and reliability of language, we become more vulnerable to crude exercises of power. And I think that really evokes sort of two questions there. One, how does a loss of language make our personal lives cruder? But then also on a societal level, how does it lead um, to our vulnerability to oppression? Well, the vulnerability to oppression certainly has to do with the fact that in authoritarian regimes and dictatorships, when when people have been subjected to crude exercises of power, one of the instruments that's always used is sloganeering, reducing things to slogans that then become the currency that people exchange to decide that they're in the same club. And so in order to resist that, it seems to me that we need to hang on to that middle ground between the polarized opposites. There's so much in current discourse that is sharply divided now between right and left, Republican, Democrat, you know, that just all of the bifurcations that we see in American culture. So it seems to me that the challenge is to stay in the gray area, stay in the middle ground. And I, I use Jane Austen often as an example of a writer who inhabited a culture where there was much more nuanced language, not that we need to go back to 18th century speech, but she really makes a distinction between when a character is confused or perplexed or irritated or vexed or agreeable or amiable. You know, all of those now slightly quaint words suggest very thoughtful, careful distinctions between different states of mind and different dimensions of character. So those are the things it seems to me that we lose when we have so many hyperboles and just say, oh, that was great or that's so exciting, that's terrific, or what a disaster, or this is a crisis. Think how often we hear the word crisis, rather than this is a problem, or um, this is a moment to step back and reconsider, what do, what do we need here? So I'm not suggesting that our language should become more bland. I think it's really important to have very strong, forthright, candid language. You know, that sort of provokes a question about not only sort of the polarities of language or the specificity, but also even the categories. You know, a couple of years ago, we hosted David Brooks to talk about his book, The Road to Character. And one of the things he mentioned in his book, which I thought was such a, an elegant and sort of creative way to illustrate a shift in culture is he essentially used Google N-words to track language usage over time and found something that won't surprise you, which is that the amount of times that the language of self and individuality has increased dramatically, words like community, common good have decreased. The language around markets, branding, finances, the economy has shot up. Language around morality and virtue has fallen precipitously. Words like kindness, 
bravery, courage, and humbleness, he actually found their usage declined by over half. And I'd love to get your thoughts and reflections about how the decline of the, the categories of our vocabulary might affect the common good. Well, I love your summary of what Brooks was talking about. I think that one of the factors here is the, the retreat into abstractions. Ezra Pound was the one that said, go in fear of abstractions. And sometimes I've given short assignments to students to say, okay, you, you need to write this, but you don't get to use any word that ends with ISM or M-E-N-T or N-E-S-S or T-I-O-N, no abstractions. And it's difficult to navigate a public conversation without encountering words, even a good word like justice deserves for somebody to say, well, what exactly do you mean by that? What does justice look like? And can we talk about the treatment of accused people? Or can we talk about a justice system and how it works? But it seems to me that increasingly, in addition to what Brooks said, I would observe that we tend to deal in abstractions far more, which generally mean that we protect ourselves from having to actually name things that are uncomfortable. I imagine we have a fair number of viewers who are thinking that is fascinating and I'd love to expand my vocabulary or encourage my children to broaden and expand their vocabulary and make their word usage more, more specific. What advice would you give them about how to, to build a vocabulary to to find and use the right word, not only to more precisely convey meaning, but also to imbue meaning in an experience. Well, first of all, I would say that expanding your vocabulary doesn't mean necessarily finding more sophisticated words. Mm -hmm. It might mean using more precise words, which is, wait, what exactly are you talking about? If you're talking about a bird, what kind of bird is it? Mm -hmm. Where did you see it? And give it some context. So. Um, really making a practice of getting very particular nouns and verbs that actually get at the process. People throw their verbs away. It's tragic. I had a little section in there on parts of speech, but, but verbs are where we answer the question, how did that happen? What happened? And we live so much in a culture that's focused on product that I think process gets backgrounded. But a good verb really is revelatory in uh, helping people to understand connections, to connect the dots and see process. So I'd say, again, go in before you go on, before expanding your vocabulary, just really make choices that get as close to what you're actually talking about as possible. I think what do you mean and what do I mean are two of the most important questions we can hold as we enter public conversation. You know, I'd actually wanted to ask you about verbs. I think we're going to have, a, we have a lot of wordsmiths who are watching today. And at one point you say that getting verbs right is one of the most important aspects of writing, which actually struck me as sort of interesting given that you've written a book entitled Adverbs for Advent, but a notebook about verbs yet. But why is it that verbs of all the different parts of speech you believe are the most important to caring for words well? Because I think the difference between it was gutted or it was damaged or it was impaired or it was, I don't know, prevented from something, you know, those kinds of, 
when damage has been done, what kind of damage has been done? And I think if you get at a verb that says, here is what happened as closely as possible, if you say this was rooted out, that's different from saying this was solved or this was reframed or shifted or undermined or extracted. You know, there are lots of ways in which we can deal with a public problem. And if you just start to scan for the verbs in news stories about healthcare or about whatever decisions are being made on the floor of Congress or about what the military is doing, many of them veil actual events. And so I think a lot of the courage and candor that can be exercised by good writers is writing that verb. So I wanted to ask you, how do we learn in a culture of lies to discern what is true? And then how do we learn to have a zero tolerance policy towards lies? I think that the question of discernment has to do with community. We need to be in communities of readers, thoughtful people who read together, who help cross-check and modify each other's perceptions. I've just begun reading a book that my daughter recommended to me called Blind Spot, which is about the fact that we all have little blind spots in our eyes, but we also have blind spots in our brains. So all of us have hidden biases that we can't detect. And the only way we're going to detect those is if we build circles of trust among other people who also read, who are, have entered the conversation, having had some intellectual and spiritual formation that, that gives them criteria so that we know how they make their judgments. Um, we might understand the limitations of their judgments. I think the relational dimension of discernment is really important, that we go to people we know are grounded in their own desire to understand what's true. And the other thing is that I think we have to be very careful about what we understand as evidence. It troubles me that people seem to care very, a lot less about evidence. You know, so-and-so said it, I believe it, that's it. So I think to keep pressing for evidence is one strategy for not tolerating lies how do you know is certainly as important a question as what do you mean? Mm -hmm. How do you know? How do I know? How did we get there? To be accountable for that seems to me to be a, a very high on the list of citizen responsibilities. So one of the perhaps surprising stewardship strategies you mentioned in terms of caring for words is to cherish silence, which is something we actually have very little of now. And so would love for you to reflect on why you believe valuing and preserving silence is so vital to caring for words. Well, I think musicians and poets really know that silence is part of the texture of a composition or a text. If you don't have the rests in there, you don't have music. If you don't have all that white spa space on the page, you don't have a poem. And even paragraphing is a way of building in a space for a breath. I think that the long history of certainly Christian tradition, but I would say any spiritual or wisdom tradition we know has some version of enter into silence in order to hear what the spirit has to say to you. Go into a quiet place in order to hear your own conscience, your own self. 
And anyone who's ever tried to meditate or pray knows how difficult it is to shut down the inner chatter, which is the reflection of the outer chatter. But I would bet that it, most of us have had the experience of just listening to the radio in the car a little bit too long and feeling jangled. So there's something in ourselves that I think is like thirst for silence. You breathe differently in silence. Your, your heart can open differently in silence. And I really mean the deep silence that has no agenda, that just says, here I am. I love the stories in Samuel of Eli telling Samuel just to say, here I am. I'm open, I'm available, I'm waiting. I don't need to do anything right now, just be. I remember um, a professor of mine in graduate school said, you tend to rush to meaning when you're examining a text or metaphor. He said, just let things be before you make them mean. And I thought that was a really fascinating piece of advice. Just let things be. And I think a lot of very earnest people, especially in my experience, want to rush to meaning. This is important because but maybe you could just rest with this is important or even with this is. So we're gonna to turn to questions from our viewers in just a second, but before we do, I'd be very curious about some of the works that you have particularly enjoyed or would recommend that you believe help evoke a love for words and a desire to care for them. Well, there are many, of course, but I think one of the people who isn't read as much as he should be, and he just recently died, was George Steiner, who spoke, I believe, 15 languages and I think was arguably one of the smartest people on the planet. But he's a writer who crafts his sentences so beautifully, I would almost say you could open one of his books and stick your finger down on the page and find a remarkable sentence. The art of the sentence in Steiner is really worth looking at. He also wrote a great deal about language itself. And he wrote a beautiful book called Real Presences about the way in which words create presence. And words have a kind of sacramental quality in that way. He wrote about the German language. I think I'd like to end later with something he said about how languages can be damaged in a, a difficult and in some ways infamous essay about what happened to German in the course of the Third Reich, but that languages can be depleted, inflated, damaged to the point of unusability. There was a poet who said, Adorno, who said there can be no poetry after Auschwitz. Of course there has been, but that cry of a poet was to say, how do we even retrieve language that isn't so contaminated? that it's almost unusable. And I think as we look around now and think about all of the words that have become trigger words, we're in an analogous, if not similar situation. I've opened a number of workshops on loaded language, just asking people, what are some words you just feel as though you can't use anymore? Because as soon as people hear them, they get triggered. They already have a set of assumptions that kick in and they don't listen anymore. And the list is long. And everyone knows words like that. So that's something, that's a reclamation project. How do we bring those back and surround them with language that helps people to hear them again? That's great. 
Well, we're going to turn to the our hearing from our viewers now. So we will start off with a question from Julia Forsyth, who asks, could you elaborate on your childhood dinner conversations, family prayers, and possibly books your family read together? Oh, I would love to do that. I will say that my mother and grandmother were both teachers, and we did live in a three-generation household, which I now recognize was a tremendous gift because my very articulate grandparents linked us to a generation that learned differently and spoke differently and also practiced a kind of leisure that has become more rare. So we did sit around after dinner and talk. My grandfather was from North Carolina from a huge family of 14 children and they had lots of stories and so he would tell stories. And I've come to think of him as the kind of home homegrown Faulkner. You know how Faulkner starts a lot of his sentences with because, and it just drops you in the middle of something you haven't been there for the beginning of. And so grandpa would tell those stories that just were continuations of stories and we'd have to just kind of pick it up as we went along. But also my grandmother was really wonderful at just gently pausing and saying, now what do you exactly mean by that? Let's talk about that word. And so you asked where I got my sensitivity to words. Some of it is by being around people who paid attention to words and not just used them to get to the ideas behind the words, so to speak. The other thing is that she read me Winnie the Pooh about 300 times. And what I love about Winnie the Pooh, the, the real one, not the disnified version, is that they tolerate one another in this little community. They find out ways to deal with, you know, Eeyore's self-pity or Owl's pomposity or Rabbit's officiousness or Pooh's bumbling mistakes or Piglet's timidity and so on. And they talk to one another in a way that is generous and compassionate. And they also know that if they can't fix it, Christopher Robin cares for them and he will come help them. So that was a big one. I think Winnie the Pooh is a wonderful formative text. The other one I would say is I read Little Women many times, which I think uh, was really formative for many American girls. And that's a family in which people talk about things. If you remember the movie of Sense and Sensibility with Emma Thompson, the youngest daughter, Margaret, has a line I love where she, she really likes their neighbors. She says to her mother, they talk about things. We don't talk about things. Well, my family talked about things. And sometimes the conversations were uncomfortable and that needed to be okay. So the next question comes from Martin Shad, who asks, what does not tolerating lies look like in action? Well, I had an older friend who is now gone who had a lot of what my grandmother would have called gumption. And she was very active in local, local issues. She served on the city council and <laughs> she famously listened for a long time to someone at a city council meeting. And when they asked for responses from the audience, she stood up and cleared her throat and then just said, that's hogwash. And she went on, I suppose, to elaborate. But the point is, oh, please. You know, there's the time to say, I'm just not buying that and here's why. And you have to say, here's why. But I think to practice discernment, to practice the careful listening that I think can be rooted in Lectio Divina, to listen for people's evasive language, 
and then to challenge them with it. And I think there are diplomatic and courteous ways of challenging people without pulling your punch too much. I don't think you have to go in with your fists raised. But I do think that practicing candor is a way of practicing courtesy. I don't understand you. I'd really like to understand you. But right now, it sounds to me as though this is what you're saying. Could you let me know if I'm wrong? No, there are lots of ways to frame an objection. And we need to retrieve those too. I think that for all kinds of good reasons, we are more careful now about stepping on each other's toes or saying things that sound dismissive and not being open enough. But there's, you know, there's that gesture like this where you're, I don't know, you see it in the Buddha statues sometimes, one hand open and receptive that says, I'm listening, I'm receiving. And the other held up to say, there's something I'm protecting here. And you don't get to come past this without my permission. So I think not tolerating lies also just has to do with asking for evidence in some kindly way to say, could you tell me how you arrived at that conclusion? Could you tell me about process? We're back to verbs here. How did it happen? How did you get there? And asking those questions is as important as having a counter argument. We don't have to leap right into argument. Staying in conversation, I think, though, means saying, I need more evidence. Help me with this. Great. So Nick Buckner asks, how has the social and educational tendency towards specialization of knowledge and practice affected our ability to communicate with and understand others? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, certainly coming out of academic environments where I've inhabited most of my life, academics, like everyone else, have developed professional jargon. And I think we have to be careful about those of us who are in professional circles about becoming members of a sort of exclusionary club that says, I know the lingo, and you don't, because language becomes a kind of club handshake. So I think Wendell Berry is a wonderful example of a writer who has access to enormous range of vocabulary, but he uses plain words in such a, in such a way as to clarify. Clarity is, what, is one of his primary values, I think, in his writing and his speaking. So I think there's medical jargon, there's scientific jargon, and some of the jargon is important if you're talking to other professionals. But all of us have to translate. There's a chapter in Caring for Words about caring for translation. And that means not only from French or German or Hindi to English, but it also means from one field to another. And it's really good practice to enter into conversation with someone and offer definitions for things that seem commonplace to you. We all forget that we speak within a certain cultural and professional milieu. So translation, being aware of the need to be able to rephrase what we've said and to really listen for where we might be losing our listeners is an important part of being generous in our um, intellectual life. That's great. So Esther Jadhav asks, how do we help people care for words and language when so much of our reality is consumeristic? Just give me what I need. It is hard work, but necessary. So she's soliciting suggestions on how this can be done well. Well, that's a good question too. I think 
one thing is, I haven't mentioned laughter in here. Mm -hmm. There's a place for, you must be kidding. You know, if we listen to the, the slogans or the ads or the, you need this. I'm thinking of ads for women's clothing that say this is a, you know, the, these are necessary items for your fall wardrobe. And I think, I don't think so. Necessary? No, I don't think so. So I think helping children to look at ads discerningly and talking about language is the best defense. Wait, what did they just say? You know, I actually think that one of the things I've heard a little too much, even in church environments, is excited. We're all so excited about our new program. We're really excited about this mission trip, and we're excited about people coming today, and we're so excited all the time. Excited used to be a kind of slightly pathological nervous condition. <laughs> and I think it's good to remember that we don't have to be excited all the time. Sometimes we could just be musing or thoughtful or waiting to decide where we want to go with this. But I think to think about words and talk about words and laugh at words and laugh with words is a level of conversation people don't get enough of. I have noticed in classes that it's really hard sometimes to get people to move from looking through the text to looking at the text. In fact, years ago, I had a student who come in, came in when we were reading the Scarlet Letter. She said, well, I think it's a good story, but you know, I just can't quite get to the story, there are so many words. I said, you know what? This, that's what the story's made out of. So just look at the words. You're not trying to find something on the other side of the words. You're trying to look at how Hawthorne used those words and why he might have chosen them. But I think it's really easy. I, the, the analogy that occurs to me is a, how a glazier looks at glass. Most of us look through the window, right? But a glazier might come in and look at the glass and I think that we need to develop that capacity to look at the glass a little more often. That's a great example. So Charity Craig asks, what venues do you think foster the best kind of public discourse? How do you take what happened at your family table into the public square? Oh, that's such a good timely question. Because my sadness in my last, say, decade of teaching is that classrooms have become more and more pressured environments. I think originally the hope of creating a campus on which people could learn was to find a place where people could be enabled to withdraw for a little while from the marketplace to have reflective conversation. We have come away since then and the, the intersection between common marketplace and campus has run pretty deep and cut deep into that territory. But I think that it's surprising to me how many book groups are springing up, people reading together and talking about them, and writing groups. And every church I know of has adult education groups. I think people are hungry for these things. And certainly there are lots of sort of chat rooms and online groups, but I think there's no substitute for gathering. And obviously here we are in the middle of this pandemic that says don't gather. But Cautiously, I think people are really making efforts still to come and sit six, eight feet apart and have some conversation. Mm -hmm. I think to do what we're doing, to create forums in which people can at least approximate the personal conversation and then carry that back into whoever they talk to is a way of fostering an environment that says we need to talk to each other. It's part of 
It's a life-giving practice. It's part of staying alive. So our next question comes from Anna Moss. And Anna says, what does cherishing silence look like for you practically on a regular basis? Well, it certainly means making time in my day to even short periods of time to just sit, be quiet. Sometimes it means holding a particular word or phrase like be with me or guide me or show me or open my heart. You know, all of those things that can be brought into, say, centering prayer practices. Sometimes it just means not having any even beautiful music going on in the background Mm -hmm. or not listening to the radio. And that's hard for me. There are lots of, there are TED Talks and there's, there are good news analysts out there. I like turning on those things while I'm working in the kitchen. But once in a while, if nobody else is home, I just turn off everything and putter or clean things up or just make myself sit for a little bit and listen to the silence. And what that always does is take me inside. I think that going inside and dwelling in, I love that word, to dwell in the silence. It's to really begin to hear it. Right. So the next question comes from Brooke Sorensen. And Brooke asks, for those who study literature and have to work through large numbers of pages during the school year, how do you counsel students to continue to love and cherish words while also doing well and being efficient in their studies as those studies demand? Well, I think efficiency is overrated. I even think finishing is overrated. One of the books I've taught for years is Moby Dick. It's very long. It's not quite as long as Middlemarch. And I, I think that people who teach Victorian literature have a real challenge here because they have big fat novels. But one of the practices I developed in teaching Moby Dick was, if you can't finish, don't finish, because it is good to turn every page of the book and read them all. But it's more important to see what Melville was doing and to pause and notice some of the literary strategies and the tricks he plays on the reader and why he makes such oddball shifts from one point of view to another and how he's trying at different genres. And so when you come to class, I want you to be able to say something about what you noticed, Mm -hmm. not about how much, about whether you covered the material. Mm -hmm. I think we've become kind of addicted to coverage I got that much done, but what's the that part, you know? So I'd rather people would read more, le- read less more mm-hmm. than read more less. So James Mogford poses this question. Our daughter is a member of the University of Washington faculty and has a responsibility to help those for whom English is a second language. How can she best convey the message of caring for words to her audience? Oh, that's a lovely question. I think it's, it's one of the features of North American middle-class white culture that we get embedded in English, which is such a powerful imperial language with a long history of imperialism behind it. That, and we live on this big continent where we're not forced, by and large, to learn a second language, as so many people in the rest of the world are. But I think one of the ways to help people is to learn back, to say, you know, teach me 
what this is like for you in Spanish or in Chinese, in Mandarin. What is that word? And to allow them to do a little bit of the exchange so that you're not just imposing or even offering a language as though it's this is the valuable material we're going to work with here but to honor the fact that they also bring something to the conversation that they can offer you and that there are things you can say in Spanish that you can't say in English. And there are certainly things you can say in Mandarin Chinese that you can't say in English. And so to allow oneself to be opened in that way is part of the generosity of teaching. That's a great segue to the next question, which comes from Michael Hatwick who asks, most of us speak English, but in every language, there are some words for which the language lacks adequate words, or some things for which the language lacks adequate words. Are there realities that English lacks adequate words for? Can we start with love? If you go back to the fact that Greek has five words for love, distinguishing different dimensions of love, that's a hard one. I don't think English really has an adequate way of articulating the nuances and the breadth and the depth of different kinds of love. Of course, we can talk about it and make those distinctions, but we don't have words like filios or agape that, that give us the specificity of the experience of love. And I also think that for instance, German is one of the languages I'm able to speak and read. And people make lots of jokes about all those compound words in German that take up a whole line. But I actually think that, that the tendency in German to put words together and make new words out of them says, oh, look, here's a new experience. Let's make a word for it. So that quality of flexibility, it may be what people are trying to do by making nouns into verbs. But I think... One of the things that keeps any language alive is wordplay. And we need more puns. We need more word jokes. We need more kind of word games and word play. There used to be a radio program that came out of the UK, of course, called My Word. And it was a lot of wordplay and word games. And at the end of it, each of the contestants had to make up a story that would lead to a particular word or phrase. It was delightful to listen to because it was all play. So I think part of plowing up that soil we talked about is engaging in wordplay with people and enjoying it. We're going to take one more question from our audience, and this comes from Harry Ogden, who asks, how has your faith and your sense of importance and care in our use of words changed over the decades since Caring for Words was first published? Mm. Well, I think to use a common metaphor, faith is a journey. And one of the books that has been really illuminating for me recently, and many of you probably know it, is Neil Douglas Klotz's, well, two books. He, Douglas Klotz is a double last name. One is Prayers of the Cosmos, and the other is The Hidden Gospel. He is a scholar, an Aramaic scholar, and he points out that some of the most of the 75 different translations of the Old and New Testaments that we have, or the New Testament, come from Greek. But Jesus actually spoke Aramaic, which was a Middle Eastern language that was related to Hebrew. And so, and it was a language that allowed far more nuance, flexibility, variant translation 
than English allows for. And so he goes through the Lord's Prayer and the Beatitudes and shows one of the things he does is just say, okay, here's the line in English, blessed are they that mourn. And then he gives you eight different ways of translating that from Aramaic that open up what mourn might be. And that mourning, even the word in Greek for mourning is narrower in a sense than what Aramaic would have allowed for. Words all have ranges of meaning. They don't just have a meaning, as we all know. They're, they have resonance. And so that has helped me to go back to scripture to really pay attention to what difference the differences make in different uh, translations and to come back to this core idea that it's a living word, that what we, that scripture, the written text itself is sacred, but it's sacred in the sense that it's imbued with the life of the people who read it. And so reading it together and coming back to it and looking at different translations has really deepened and opened my faith in new ways. That's great. Thank you, Marilyn. I would love to give you the last word. Thank you. You said you were going to do that. And I thought about my various last words. And then I thought I would give it to George Steiner, partly as an homage to someone who has been such a word hero for me. This is from his reflection on what happened to German in the course of the Third Reich. He says, languages have great reserves of life. They can absorb masses of hysteria, illiteracy, and cheapness. But there comes a breaking point. Use a language to conceive, organize, and justify Belsen. Use it to make out specifications for gas ovens. Use it to dehumanize man during 12 years of calculated bestiality. Something will happen to it. Something of the lies and sadism will settle in the marrow of the language, imperceptibly at first, like the poisons of radiation sifting silently into the bone. But the cancer will begin and the deep-set destruction. The language will no longer grow and freshen. And this is the part I love. It will no longer perform quite as well as it used to. <clears throat> its two principal functions, the conveyance of humane order, which we call law, and the communication of the quick of the human spirit, which we call grace. I just want to say those again. The two principal functions of language, as he understands them, are the conveyance of humane order, which we call law, and the communication of the quick of the human spirit, which we call grace. Marilyn, thank you. It has been a delight to talk with you today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's program and show notes are available on the Trinity Forum website at www.ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift of great conversation.